The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Part 3, Chapter 46 of The Last Drink Whereupon the following proceedings were had in open court in the presence of the jury. The court. Please be seated. Let the record show this is 94CF99, People versus Donald Bull. Show the people present by the state's attorney, Ed Danner and Special Assistant State's Attorney Ed Parkinson. The defendant is present in person and by his attorneys, Alyssa McMillan and Dean Stone. The evidence is closed in this case, and the court and the jury will now entertain the closing arguments of counsel. Mr. Danner? Mr. Danner. May it please the court counsel, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. We have been here now three and a half weeks. We have listened to the testimony or stipulations of fact from approximately 74 witnesses that the people have presented. There have been approximately 10 witnesses called by the defendant in their case, and we have called an additional three witnesses in rebuttal. That is 87 witnesses. There were 77 exhibits marked by the people, 71 of them admitted into the record. There were a handful of exhibits introduced by the defendant, I believe five. It's been noted by counsel for the parties that during this entire ordeal, that you have been very attentive. You have been very patient, and we believe that we have selected the right jurors to hear this case. And as you might remember, we spent four days selecting the 16 of you to sit in this case, because we believe that you had the right stuff to make a fair and impartial decision to both parties. Thank you for that. Before I get into the heart, the body, and soul of my closing argument today, I want to remind you of a couple things. Just like in opening statements, these closing arguments are not evidence. The evidence in this case is what you heard from that witness stand, and it is the exhibits that were introduced and came through that witness stand. That's what the evidence in this case is. During this trial, there have been some questions, answers to questions, and some exhibits that were either stricken or not allowed to be admitted into the record. I would indicate to you that those questions that were stricken or those answers that were stricken, or those exhibits that were denied, are not the evidence. During this closing argument, which will be probably relatively long, if I misstate what has been said from the witness stand, I want you to disregard what I said, and remember what the witnesses said in this proceeding. That's your job as jurors. In my opening statement, I set out and gave you, in effort, a schedule of events that would transpire during this trial. I want to comment very briefly that in this closing stage of the case I am provided the opportunity to speak first. The defendant and his counsel, they are provided an opportunity to speak and the people, it will be Mr. Parkinson this morning, will have the final say. It is reorganized and understood that the procedure is allowed and provided for as the people. The people of this state whom I represent have the burden of proof and this is a criminal case. That burden of proof is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We accept that burden of proof. We accept the law that we anticipate the court will advise you at the close of the case. Now during this closing, this is my last comment on closings. The attorneys are allowed to argue, to argue the reasonable inferences from the evidence that was introduced in this courtroom. If you don't find the inferences to be reasonable, you're not bound to accept those. And as you should keep in mind, In every stage of your deliberations, you and only you are the finders of fact. The triers of this case. That's your responsibility. Two and a half weeks ago, you were advised by counsel for both parties that the defendant stood charged with the offenses of first-degree murder, concealment of homicidal deaths, and aggravated arson. It is my recollection I briefly spoke to you a little bit about those. I'm going to go a little more into detail 
at the outset of my closing statement here today and anticipate that at the close of this case, after all the arguments are done, the court is going to advise you in the following effect. A person commits the offense of the first degree murder when he kills an individual if, in performing the acts which caused the death, one, he intended to kill the individual or, and this is a disjunctive, it is an or, not an and, and he knows that such acts will cause the death to that individual, and he knows that such acts create a strong probability of death to that individual, or he was committing the offense of aggravated criminal sexual assault. That last provision, the aggravated criminal sexual assault, only would apply to the murder of Donna Tompkins, not to Justine. There has not been any allegation brought during this trial by the people that this defendant sexually assaulted the baby. I additionally anticipate that the court will advise you, referring to the last disjunctive and the definition of first-degree murder, that a person commits the offense of criminal sexual assault when he commits an act of sexual penetration upon the victim by the use of force or threat of force. A person commits the offense of aggravated criminal sexual assault when he commits sexual assault and causes bodily harm to the victim or acts in such a manner as to threaten or endanger the life of the victim or the criminal sexual assault is perpetrated during the course of the commission of the offense of murder. I also anticipate that the term sexual penetration will be defined to you by the court to mean any contact, however slight, between the sex organ of one person and the sex organ of another person. Looking at concealment of homicidal death, I anticipate the court will advise you that a person commits the offense of concealment of homicidal death when he conceals the death of another person with knowledge that the other person has died by a homicidal means. The term homicidal means any act, lawful or unlawful, of a person which causes the death of another person. The word concealment means the performing of some act or acts for the purpose of preventing or delaying the discovery of a death by homicidal means. Concealed requires something more than simply withholding knowledge or failing to disclose information. Looking at the aggravated arson for a moment, a person commits the offense of arson when he, by means of fire, knowingly damages real property of another without his or her consent. A person commits the offense of aggravated arson when, in the course of committing arson, he knowingly damages, partially or totally, any building and he knows or reasonably should know that one or more persons is present. With that little introduction or definitions of these offenses that the defendant stands charged with, you should now have a clear understanding of what elements you should be looking for in offenses if you are going to perform your duties as jurors to make a fair and impartial determination of the facts in this case. Speaking a moment about this case. When we began the Voyadire selection three and a half weeks ago, you were told that this was an awful, ugly, heinous, brutal case. I would indicate to you that in a case of this nature, whether you're 25 years old or 80 years old, it has to upset you. There has to be, underneath the surface, anger, rage. These are the types of offenses that not only impact the victims, Donna and Justine Tompkins, but they impacted everyone that knew them. And to some extent, as I am the representative for the people of this state, the state of Illinois, to some extent it has lessened and diminished all of us, all of us in this state. I'm going to diverge back for a moment about the few things that were said two and a half weeks ago during opening statements by the respective parties. If you recall, in my opening statement I indicated to you, you would hear from a number of witnesses, and that the witnesses would bring in evidence in this proceeding, a piece at a time. Of evidence to be assembled. You recall that I spoke of the jigsaw puzzle. I indicated to you that in the opening statement that by the time this case was concluded and you went back to that jury room to deliberate these little puzzle pieces would form a picture and that picture is the guilt of this defendant. I told you that the borders of this puzzle would be arson and murder and I told you that the inside pieces of that puzzle would show that the defendant is the one responsible for the murders of Donna and Justine Tompkins. What was indicated by the defense in their opening? Do you recall that? They made a comment to the effect that David Haynes, a lawyer and a banker, claimed to go down and check on his employee, Donna Tompkins. That there was a very clear view of the entrance to Donna's apartment. No trees, no shrubs. That there were two important conclusions of Ted Anderson that would show that David Haynes' observations weren't possible. He talked about the glass being broken in the door before the fire started 
and they spoke of that Haynes could not have stood where he was, or he would have been injured or killed by a backdraft. They indicated that Haynes kept changing his stories, to a way he thought were going to help him. And do you remember the end? Towards the end of their opening, they said, Why aren't the people out looking for the person who did this? Well, I'm going to tell you why the people are not out on the streets looking right now. That person who committed these crimes is right here in court. He has been in front of you for the last three and a half weeks. And that guy, that is Donald R. Bull, a murderer. Well, let's start looking at the evidence that you've heard about during these last two and a half weeks of actual trial time. Let's first of all talk a little bit about who Donna and Justin Tompkins were. Donna, she was 30 years old. She had an undergraduate degree from Marquette University in Wisconsin. She was the mother of a three-year-old. She was dependable, a well-liked employee of the National Bank of Canton. You heard that from Max Scott. She was married but separated. What was she trying to do? She was trying to make ends meet. She had a regular job at the National Bank of Canton, and on the weekend, she was working as a waitress at the Elks Club to try to raise a little extra money to help make ends meet. And what else was she? She was involved in a developing relationship with Rod Franciscovich. Do you remember Rod? She was a pretty, attractive, young lady with a lot to live for. Justine. Who was Justine Tompkins? She had just turned three years of age in the last summer, or early fall of 92. She was enrolled at the local daycare school. She was just leaving behind babyhood and becoming a little girl. If any of you have been around youngsters, you know that the three-year-old was no longer quite a baby, but just starting to be a little girl. And you know what else? You know that little girl was loved by a lot of people. Her daddy. Do you remember Rose Montoya? a lady who saw Justine and Donna on the Sunday before their deaths at the Catholic Church in Canton. Do you remember about Rose telling you about Justine being a little cranky that day? She asked her if she wanted to go down front and see baby Jesus. And she said, I didn't know that was the last time I was going to get to see her. A little girl who never got the chance to grow up because of this defendant, because this defendant saw fit to kill her, to cover up his rage and murder of her mother. And there they were at Christmas, just a couple weeks before her death. They had a lot to live for. And here's what they looked like on January 13th, 1993. Let's talk a minute about Donald Arbol. Who is Donald Arbol? He was a guy who worked at a local furniture store in Canton. Drove a truck. Worked with a guy by the name of Mike Price. Do you remember Mike? Kind of a burly guy. A guy who had his previous run-ins with the law. He was a guy who lived with Rochelle Hillmeyer for about two weeks prior to the death of Don and Justine Tompkins. I think Rochelle indicated, late December 92, or early January 93, that Bull moved in with her. He was a guy who used her car, a guy who borrowed her bicycle to go to work, a guy who played cards and drank 18 to 20 beers on the night of January 12th, through the morning of January 13th, 1993, a guy who felt comfortable enough talking with Harold Crozer and Chris Chester and he heard the examination. Convicted felons. Do you remember in the opening by the defense? They talked about Crozier and Chester. Being the guys that the police put on their team. Called them lowlifes. Oh, and during the opening statement by the defendant, and during their case, you saw them attempt to implicate David Haynes into this crime. Let's take a moment and look at who David Haynes is. If I misstated any point during the closing anything that you heard, Please go with your memory. It is my recollection that David Haynes was a graduate from Avon High School. He graduated from college. He worked at a factory in Galesburg. Outboard Marine, I think, was the name of it. He got drafted in the Army. He spent two years as a quote-unquote accountant processing paperwork for people shipping overseas. And that when his tour of duty was done with the military, he came back and went back to work at the same factory making the outboard engines. And he indicated to you that he came back, finished an undergraduate degree. Sometime thereafter, he enrolled at law school at Southern University. Took some classes at both. I guess it was Carbondale and Champaign both. That he was later licensed to practice law in this state. That he has been a trust officer with the National Bank of Canton for a number of years. That he was married in 1989. You saw his wife here yesterday, Sarah Haynes. Still married. 
He's got two kids, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Just about the same age Justine would be now. I would ask Mr. Burkaw to start the tape. We are going to listen a moment to the initial call the morning of January 13th. Voice 1. Police Department, may I help you? Voice 2. Yes, this is David Haynes from the National Bank. Voice 1. Uh-huh. Voice 2. My secretary hasn't come up for work, and now I am over at the house that she lives in. Her car is there, and no one answered the door. I really feel that you should send someone over, and you should get the door open. I don't have a key to get in. I really think that we need to... Donna? Get someone over here. It is 365 South 1st. We will need something to get the door open. Voice 1. 365 South 1st. Voice 2. Yes. Voice 1. Okay, I will send an officer down. Voice 2. Alright, bye. That phone call. That was the start of things for law enforcement back on January 13th, 1993. It was 931, 932, 9.30 a.m. And what do you know? Marty Brown was dispatched down from the Canton Police Department. He testified in this courtroom. It is my recollection, it was about 9.36 when he arrived and the place was on fire. The fire department was summoned. The fire was put out. The bodies were discovered and transported for autopsy to be performed by Dr. Murphy in Springfield. The cause and origin investigation of the fire began. Let's take a look at that arson investigation. A systematic scene investigation was commenced. John Stenko was there from the Canton Fire. Ted Anderson, the state's fire marshal's office. Some gentlemen were called in from the ATF. Maroka and Maluli. There were some other people from the state fire marshal's office. Several of these witnesses talked about what you do to perform an arson investigation. And they indicated to you that one of the first things that you do is they make an exterior check of the building to see what they can determine from looking at the outside. And what do they do? They go in the interior and they inspect the interior looking for areas of the heaviest fire damage to assist in the origin and cause determination. They do a partial debris removal. After they have partially removed the debris, they attempt to restore the contents of that building or apartment to its approximate original location. They collect samples and finally, after they have gone through all of that, they take some samples. We are going to look at just a couple of photos here this morning. Investigator Stenko put this book together. You actually saw slides on the projection screen. You probably will want to look at this entire book. But picture number four shows the front of the apartment building. It also shows the side of Donna's apartment, her entrance door, a photograph of the back windows where several people attempted to make entry to see if there was a little girl in the back bedroom. There is the garage that was right behind the apartment building. Someone identified that car in the middle as being Donna Tompkins' car. And of course, there is another photo right underneath it that shows another vehicle above. Certainly. That would be gasoline in that garage, available to anyone. Photos 36 and 37 show you a pretty clear view of what the room looked like from which the bodies were discovered. As you go through the book, you will find a photo of the daybed where the bodies were discovered. You will see the kitchen. You see the bathroom. You see the room where the child is. And none of you are expert arson investigators, but if you spend a few minutes looking at these photographs, you're going to see that the fire damage was, of course, the very heaviest in the living room. There was less in the kitchen and less in the bathroom. And finally, by the time you get to the child's bedroom, it is mostly smoke damage. I wanted to direct your attention to look at the photograph 143 in this book. This was Justine's bedroom. I think it is a little homemade comforter. Do you remember what Stenko said when he testified? That he recovered that pillow from behind the headboard? and he told you that that pillow was less smoke damaged than some other parts, that it had been in a partially protected location. It is a piece of circumstantial evidence of the death of Justine Tompkins. Mr. Stenko is much better at this than what I am. Some of the concluding photographs are going to show the burn patterns that they found after they washed the floor. And I believe there were a number of witnesses, even the defendant's witness, Mr. Burns, who spoke of gasoline being heavier than air and how it would soak down into the materials and burn. And Mr. Stenko, if you recall, had his little red flashlight or light beam and delineated for you while you sat here in open court the burn patterns that he saw. You'll want to spend a few moments looking at this book. You know there were some samples that were also taken. Fires on Wednesday the 13th and on Saturday the 16th were Maroka and Maluli, Tanker, Glover, 
Shaw, Stenko, I think that the thrust of them are down there. And they took a number of samples from the hide-a-bed area. And they took some samples from the floor area inside the door. Do you remember Raymond Cato, a forensic chemist? He talked about running a piece of equipment. Gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer. I was a political science major, so I am not a science major. So this equipment is a little bit like a bell and a whistle to me. Do you remember all these cans we brought out and we marked them? Do you remember what Cato told you? He told you how the first submission, which was a metal can containing some partially burned cloth, taken from the hide bed What did he discover? Gasoline, and of course, ethyl alcohol. What else did Cato tell you? Well, there is some partially burned cloth removed off of that hide bed And what did he find on that? Heavy petroleum distillants. Your kerosene? Lamp oils? Charcoal starter fluid? That is what Cato told you. There was another can that he had that had some more partially burned cloth. And he found some more heavy petroleum distillants on that. And more ethyl alcohol. And he did have one sample of burnt wood taken near the entrance that he found tested positive for gasoline. It is my recollection that each and every sample that he tested from the initial submission tested positive for ethyl alcohol, a compound found in alcoholic beverages, among other things. Keto indicated to you, if my recollection is correct, that he could not find enough of the trace components from this ethyl alcohol to further identify it. We had another series of metal cans that came in, and Dr. Murphy and Craig Shaw and Stanko and Keto, they were all in that chain. And you know what those were? Those were some samples later taken by Dr. Murphy down at the Memorial Medical Center of some skin and some hair that was cut off or removed from the bodies of both Donna and Justine Tompkins. What did Cato tell you he found on those six samples of skin and hair? Every one of them contained ethyl alcohol. One of the skin samples from the child also contained trace components that can match up with Canadian Miss Whiskey. Do you remember that bottle that was found? Part of it on top of the hide bed and part of it was found underneath the hide bed And what else did he find? He found that two samples of a hair taken from the mother contained gasoline. Every witness who testified in this case that is involved is an arson expert or an arson investigator sat here in this chair and told you that this was an intentionally set fire. There was absolutely no doubt from any of the testimony that came in that this was an arson. And when we get to that origin, Stenko and Anderson said two points of origin. Burns from Chicago. He comes down and Burns is a nice guy. And I'm sure every one of you liked Burns. And he said, well, gee, I think it is one area of origin. And I kind of picked at him a little bit. And I even asked him a question and said, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe I do. You kind of remember that? Mr. Burns and I kind of having a little fun. And he said, I have a 10 by 10 foot room. I think it is the area of origin. And then I said, or asked him, can you find a direct connection point between the hide bed and the area by the door? And he said, well, there is no direct burn pattern. What else did he say? He said, the guys you had down there, our local fire department from Canton, the state fire marshal's office, and a couple of guys came from the ATF, did an excellent job. It has to be obvious and apparent to you that they were the ones on the scene. I think they were the ones there on 13th of January. I think they were there on the 14th or 15th. They were there on the 17th of January. And Ted Anderson and John Stinko were down on February 1st. They brought the fire truck down and washed the floor. And they were the ones there in person looking at the clearly delineated burn pattern. I asked Mr. Burns some questions about if there was any way he could realistically or truthfully or factually or something to that effect, saying where the point of ignition of the fire had been. And he said, well, I assume by the door, but there's really no way to prove it. And then he talked about, he interviewed a number of arson defendants or suspects in his career. And, you know, a lot of them pour their accelerants in that area where they want to cause the most damage and then trail it to the door so they can light it at the doorway. I'm going to tell you something, that just because someone else and some different fires bent over and set it at the doorway does not mean that's what necessarily occurred here. They all agreed that the area of origin was in the living room, where the hide bed was, where the bodies of Don and Justine Tompkins were discovered. Stanko Anderson... They indicated to you that there were two points of origin, and Anderson indicated that as this investigation developed, and there was a lot made about his reports from January 13th to January 21st, the first eight days, and of course, 
that is before everything has been completed within the scene investigation. There's no reports back from Cato saying what he has found. There has been no wash of the floor. What did Ted Anderson tell you from the state fire marshal's office? He told you it was his opinion that the bodies were the main part of destruction in that room. He said that if someone had set the fire at the door first, and then they set a fire at the bed, that they would have impeded their escape from the door. And if you remember, there was only one door leading in and out of that apartment of Don and Justine Tompkins. Now, if I can find my diagram and easel for a moment. This, Diagram 33, was prepared by John Stanko. He did the sketch. He told you it wasn't to scale. Did it with the computer. Had it enlarged. And this Exhibit 33 located the points where the samples were taken on January 16, 1993. And if you recall, he has colored in these submissions where the accelerants were determined to be by Raymond Cato. And looking at Exhibit 37, he did another diagram. He put the red stripes on the bed and said that there were no accelerants present. And he drew an approximation, not saying to scale again, of the burn pattern that he discovered after the floor wash. They are pretty close, but there is no evidence of a direct connection. Going back to Mr. Burns for a moment, do you remember a line of questioning with him? If you set a coffee pot on fire on top of a kitchen counter and you had a pool of gasoline on the floor, is it possible that the flames from the coffee pot or that appliance would perhaps go up first and burn the ceiling and not ignite the gasoline on the floor? That was the thrust of the questioning. And Burns, he said, yeah, and the reason was that these gasoline vapors were heavier than air. They sink down. They seek their lowest level, something like water. Well, the first corner has been drawn of the jigsaw puzzle, and those first corners are arson. There is no question about that. Let's turn to the victims. Let's talk about Dr. Murphy for a minute. What did you find out about Dr. Murphy? Graduated from medical school in 1970. Did a year residency out of USC at Los Angeles County Medical Center. Got a calling card from Uncle Sam. Spent four years working as a pathology resident at two different army hospitals. He then, after he was released from the military, after that four-year period, completed a pathology training at the University of New York in Syracuse and he has been a pathologist at Springfield Memorial Medical Center for the last 19 years. He has been board certified in anatomical pathology, clinical pathology, chemical pathology, and radioisotopic pathology. He has been licensed for 19 years. For 19 years, he has been on the staff of the Southern Illinois School of Medicine located in Springfield. The last 19 years, he has been performing and supervising autopsies at Springfield Memorial Center. Certainly not a kid wet behind the ears. Certainly a man who has performed more than his fair share of autopsies. He told you that on January 14, 1993, that he performed the autopsies of Don and Justine Tompkins. He took you through the litany. You do an external examination. We look to see what we can see on the outside of the bodies. Look for clothing, jewelry, fibers. Draw some virtuous humor fluid at the time that they are doing that. That is the liquid out of the eye. They do that for chemical and toxicological studies. They take smears from the trachea, vagina, rectum for microscopic examinations. All the body cavities are open. The organs are removed, examined separately, and blood, bile, and urine are collected for toxicological examination. He indicated that both the bodies of Donna and Justine Tompkins were almost entirely consumed by fourth degree burns. You saw some photos. I'm not going to show them to you now. I would request that when you go to the jury room that you do take a look at them for a few moments just to remind you what Dr. Murphy had to begin with when he began those autopsies. Someone was pretty darn effective with their arson. Someone was pretty darn effective obliterating or destroying some of the physical evidence you would anticipate finding in a case of this nature. He talked about skin splitting. The skin just opens up. He said it was hard to recognize the facial characteristics of either individual. 53A through 53F, those are your photos that will show you the charring of the bodies. He talked about the Y incision and reflected back on the muscle of the chest cavity. What did he tell you? He 
He said he expected to find muscles that were deep red in color in the chest cavity. He said that he found muscles that were brown in color and somewhat white. They didn't have the deep red pigmentation that would have been expected if there was an elevated carboxyhemoglobin. What is that? It seems to be carbon monoxide mixes with the blood and creates this pigment. He was puzzled. He collected some blood from the hearts of both victims. And what did he tell you? That persons who die in a fire, the typical range of this carboxyhemoglobin for an adult is normally in excess of 50%. And then he talked about that children have finer lung tissues and normally absorb more. And he would be expecting to see 70, 80, 90% of this carboxyhemoglobin. And what did Justine, the little girl, have? He testified 3.4%. And Donna, the mother, 7% in one atrium and 9% in the other. He indicated that rating for the little girl was normal, particularly if she lived around someone who smoked a little bit, and said that the mother's ratio was what have been characteristically found in an individual who smoked. And I think it was Iona Price, and maybe Cheryl Alt, a couple ladies from the Elks Club. What did they tell you? Yeah, Donna had a drink from time to time, and yeah, they knew she smoked. What else did he tell you? He told you that it was his opinion that neither victim was breathing at the time of the fire. They were dead. He took the windpipes or tracheas out of both victims. He longitudinally dissected them. 53F and 53L of the photos will show you the respective tracheas of the mother and child. And he said what? No smoke. No soot in the windpipes. And what did he say then? Without any question... Both of the individuals were dead prior to the fire. He could have added, mercifully so. He talked about this virtuous humor fluid taken out of the eye. He said it was 0.054 or 0.052, and he indicated that that was a moderate amount of alcohol. He also indicated that he found some intact spermatosa, sperm with heads and tails present from one of the swabs that were done. And he said that the intact spermatosa, according to some studies he was familiar with, would only be there for 72 hours or less. He talked a little bit more about the virtuous humor, and he talked about the blood that was done, and the toxicology studies done on that. And he indicated that it was his opinion that Donna Tompkins had died within 90 minutes of her last drink or less. David Haynes. We got him down at Donna Tompkins' apartment at 9.20. That is what the cleaning lady... Cindy now said. I guess you would have to believe that Donna was still putting them away at 8 o'clock in the morning, when she was supposed to have been at work at 8 o'clock in the morning, when David would have had an opportunity to kill her. He talked about collecting the hair and skin samples that he gave law enforcement. He also said that on the external examination, there was no jewelry found on either body. He talked about a little fragment of the collar. I don't recall if it was the mother or the child, but just one little fragment of clothing will be on one of those pictures. He said that there were no bullets, there were no fractures in the x-ray studies, that there were no naturally occurring diseases that would be responsible for the death of both of these people, that they were of such dissimilar age, 30 years of age versus 3 years of age, that he again said in his testimony that he was absolutely positive that the victims were dead before the fire. He talked about how difficult it was to work on these bodies. There were a series of questions asked about, gee, these hemorrhages, little pinpoint blood spots that you might find in strangulation and suffocation. What did he say? Not too much left to work with. If there were hemorrhages or bruising, that skin was burned away. The substance was changed by the heat. What did Dr. Murphy say? The most probable cause of death he could determine primarily through a process of elimination, would be some manner of asphyxiation. And he gave you a few examples of asphyxiation. Smothering, the pillow, putting some kind of a kink in someone's neck in an abnormal position to kink the trachea. Talked about compression or strangulation of the neck and its contained structures. What was he saying? He was saying dead prior to the fire. Foul play. Most likely foul play. Some manner of asphyxiation. You're going to have to review your notes. But it is my recollection. Talked about doing some layering of the necks of these people. Didn't do the tongues. 
He said the injuries to the tongue were not typical findings in strangulation or smothering cases from his experience and his reading and education. He saw no trauma or bite marks to the tongue. He said that in a flash fire, there is no oxygen. He said that his findings were somewhat similar to those that you would find in a flash fire. But do you remember something? Anderson, Stenko, and the defendant's witness, Burns? They all said this wasn't a flash fire. Well, what is a flash fire? That is when you're in the grain elevator and the dust explodes. Or someone has some type of flamethrower on you. Or what have you, a gas that explodes and everything immediately goes on fire and wipes out all the oxygen. But it doesn't do a lot of substantial damage to the contents of that room or area that has been put on fire. Every arson person who came in said no, not a flash fire. He was asked a few questions about suffocation by a pillow. And he said, well, you might find some petechial hemorrhages or no findings. He talked about some fingers over the mouth and some fingers up the nose. He said there wouldn't be any evidence from the autopsy unless there had been some type of trauma to the mouth or the nose. Murphy's findings, dead before the fire, foul play, most likely cause of death, some type of asphyxiation. Donna died within 90 minutes of the last drink. Dr. Jones came in on behalf of the defense. When she got her MD in 1982, 12 years after Dr. Murphy. She was licensed in 83, and she has been a pathologist since 1987. She told you that her normal duties in Cook County, Chicago, are to look for the cause and manner of death, and she's done thousands of autopsies. There is no allegation that she is not being truthful on that. She said when she looked for the manner of death in her regular normal job for Cook County, that she does the autopsy, she reviews the police reports, and she might even talk to some police. But she also indicated, to my recollection, maybe she even initiated a few investigations. What did she do in this case? She said she reviewed the autopsy reports, she saw some glass slides, histologic samples, and she saw some Kodachrome slides taken at the time of the autopsy. Well, it was one of the first things she said. Oh, not how I would have done it. Not a complete autopsy. Didn't examine the tongue. She couldn't compare or determine the time of death from the virtuous humor and the blood alcohol and that flash fire can be consistent with the death of the victims. And Murphy kind of indicated that his findings could be consistent with a flash fire. But remember, this wasn't a flash fire. Well, number one, her opinion is a direct contradiction of Dr. Murphy when she said that. No, no asphyxiation. I'm going to ask you a question. Who spent more time with the bodies? Who conducted the autopsy? And who was doing it for a longer period of time? The answer to those questions, Dr. Murphy. She indicated that Murphy was missing some subtle findings. Well, I ask you, who had the best opportunity? Someone looking at some slides or someone who was actually there working on those bodies to look at these subtle findings? Murphy, Dr. Murphy. She said that she had seen some people die from inhaling superheated air in flash fires. Can you check your memory on this? I don't have a transcript of her testimony. But those levels she had seen had been as low as 20 to 25%. What did we have in this case? What did Dr. Murphy and what did she indicate she reviewed in his report? She said Justine had a 3.4% and that Donna, the smoker, had the 7 and the 9%. I'm going to submit to you that this must be a brand new low for the carbon monoxide or carboxyhemoglobin. All Dr. Jones testified to was the low is 20 to 25%. And if it is 20%, Justine is about one-sixth of that. And remember that kids got the better, finer lung tissue that would inhale more of this more quickly. And Donna, well, she's a half or a third of that. It must be a brand new low. She also testified that, like I say, remember your own notes and your recollection. My understanding was that she had never failed to see evidence of scratches or bites or indications on the inner lips. 
you're going to have to have a chance to look at those autopsy photos. I want you to look at those inner lips. You tell me what you can see from those inner lips. She said that she always saw some of those scratches or bites or indentations in the strangulation when people had teeth. You look at those autopsy photos, you're going to see that these people had teeth. Let's compare her testimony to the other evidence in this case for a moment. You know there is accelerants on the body. You know there is accelerants on the bed. The question presents itself. How in the world do you get these two people, if they are not dead, to lay still, including the three-year-old, while you pour accelerants on them, ethyl alcohol, and HB-heavy petroleum distillants and some gasoline? I suspect many of you have given a three-year-old a bath before. You can't hardly get them to stand still to take a shower or a bath, let alone ask them to lay still on a bed while you pour on some gasoline and some ethyl alcohol. When else? Another thing that contradicts with it is the statement that Donald Bull made to Chris Chester. Do you remember Chris Chester? The big strong kid that came in from the Department of Corrections? Had some tattoos on his arms? What did he say Bull told him? He had his hands over her face. And then he heard the kid and went and did the same thing to the kid. I don't want to beat Dr. Jones to death. I'm not going to stand here today and tell you that she is some paid defense witness that comes in and says things because someone hands a few dollars out. No, that is not Dr. Jones, but she has kind of got a real tough attitude. Do you remember the adage about doctors? Doctors and God, same level. Never make a mistake, but when a doctor does, they bury it. With her abilities to observe, what was actually looked at? The Kodachrome slides and autopsy reports? Her opinions are just too extreme. Well, whatever. Whether Murphy is absolutely right that this is an asphyxiation, or if Dr. Jones is right when he says that they died from this fire. It is an intentionally set fire, and folks, that's still murder. That is our other border on the crossword puzzle. Well, my favorite point of the trial was the DNA. I expect we heard enough DNA stuff to about gag all of us. But I think what you heard from that witness stand is that DNA is stuff that has been around actually since the 1970s. I think Ostrowski said that, the defendant's witness. I think you know it is in the forensic fields now. And I think that you saw that little handbook about someone put some purported guidelines. I think some people tried to call them standards for how to conduct these procedures. I submit to you that after all that was done, you are pretty much left with the conclusion that DNA is a pretty reliable thing if specimens are collected and the tests are performed adequately. Well, you heard about RFLP, Restriction Fragment Link Polymorphism. I had to write that down. Metzger came in and he talked about DNA, a long stringy molecule and it is in every one of our cells except our red blood cells. That DNA is composed of 23 pair of chromosomes, one from mommy, one from daddy. Half your DNA from your mom, and half DNA is from your dad. He also told you that there are certain locations or loci on this DNA molecule that are unique, that make us different from each other. Although a lot of DNA sites are the same, that is why we have the five fingers and two eyes and one nose. We talked about how you do these tests. You extract the DNA from the sample, the biological matter, and you certainly know that there was biological matter that was worked on in this case. We had the swab that was taken from Donna Tompkins during her autopsy by Dr. Murphy that was detected to have the presence of spermatosa on it. You had EDTA stain cards, and if you remember, they had blood from Donna. Her EDTA stain card they had that vaginal swab. And in March of 93, Metzger goes about profiling the blood standards of David Haynes, Terry Haynes, Rod Franciscovich, and John Tompkins. He went through a five-probe analysis, it is my recollection. And what did he indicate to you? Nope, they are not a match for the semen or spermatosa that was found in that swab from Donna Tompkins' vagina. 
I'm not going to go into the southern transfer process. You saw enough x-ray films to realize that there is an appropriate method for transferring DNA to some kind of membrane and put it in some type of freezer with this x-ray film. And then you develop the x-ray film and you saw those bands. Short term was autorads for those pieces of x-ray film that show DNA. And they told you a little bit that when you see these bands, what do you get? One band is from mom and one band is from dad. And what did you see from Metzger when he was here? You saw the identification of Justin Tompkins from this RFLP process. Something like 1 in 40 million couples could have had a child like Justine. Ostrowski, he came in and said, Oh my God, they didn't have this probe to check for band shifting? And then he laid the, I think it was the defendants 7 and 8, over each other on an overhead projector and said, This one doesn't match. Well... We had a gentleman come in by the name of Bill Frank. He spoke yesterday, and Bill talked about some controls that are there to put on these auto rats. And one of them he called a molecular ruler. Had the 30 rungs, or the 30 steps. And what did Bill do? He looked at the defendant's exhibit 7 and 8 and said, By golly, if you look at those, you will see that this band is on this location of the ladder, and this other band is on that location of the ladder, and they match. He also talked a little bit, or Mike Mitzger did, about something about K562. There's something about they know the band size of K562. And it is put on all probes and they do some measurement of it. And if that K562 comes out, they know that they have a valid autorad and a valid RFLP process. I think it was clearly indicated to you that you don't, you just don't visually look at these things. You can visually look at them in some cases and exclude someone in the process there. But if it looks like a visual match, they have got some kind of computer assistant program that does a further sizing of these DNA fragments. And what did Frank tell you? And what did Metzger tell you? That they don't say they got a match until they have done both of these processes. Frank was an interesting individual, very informative. And he talked about this probe that Ostrowski had talked about and said that is a monomorphic probe I hope someone is a scientist on this jury. He said that that's no valid way to test for band shifting. What did Frank also tell you? He told you that when they set up the DNA, he was given some type of project or job. And that project or job was to try to create in the laboratory band shifting. And what did he tell you? He couldn't do it. He couldn't create it in the lab. He did say that there could be some reasons for some band shifts. And he listed three reasons. Highly degraded DNA excessive amount of DNA in the lane or fabric dyes, and he looked at the autorads that were brought into the people's case and he reviewed those. He found absolutely no evidence of any band shifting. He said that if the, if you got this band shifting problem, what Ostrowski tried to say was here, that you don't get a profile. Well, you saw the profile. You saw the autorads. And just a comment about Ostrowski. He was paid. He traveled in. The monomorphic probe, he didn't refer to that thing. He tried to say it was a guide, or whatever, saying that that had to be there. But one of the things that struck me most, he sure talked about some things that seemed to be outside of his area of scientific expertise. What did he try to tell you a couple times? Well, just because you do a DNA match and find some sperm, sure doesn't necessarily mean that somebody killed somebody. and sure doesn't tell you whether this is consensual or non-consensual sex. Well, what in the world was he testifying to? Something within his expertise? Or something best left to the arguments of lawyers? You can form your own opinion of Dr. Ostrowski. But he was a distraction in this case. And he did not have the credibility that either Metzger or Frank had. Frank was just an outstanding witness. I think he laid those things to rest. One last thing about Ostrowski. How many forensic DNA analysis had he done in his entire life? What was his answer? None. He was a population or some type of geneticist. Some kind of number guy. I'm not saying he doesn't work with DNA. I want to talk one more moment about the sperm. Ginny Hahn came in and testified yesterday. and She indicates that one of her duties as a forensic lab person at the Morton Crime Lab 
is to look at these sperm samples that are collected in the ISPECT or Batulo kits in cases where there's allegations of some type of sexual assault. She indicated to you that there is some kind of grading procedure. Numbers either 0 to 4 or 1 to 4, before being the highest. What did she tell you? She said that she rated the swab and that it was a 3 plus to a 4 plus. She told you that what was significant to her is that she found sperm with heads, spermatosa, and she found sperm with heads and what appeared to be an equal proportion sperm. That kind of tells something dropped off. What did she say? She said it was rare for her to find sperm with heads or tails intact in these analysis. She also told you that, that the sperm that was recovered had a time frame of 0 to 48 hours. The bodies were found on Wednesday morning at 9.30. If Dr. Jones is correct that they died as a result of the fire, well, that 48-hour envelope ended on Monday morning, January 11, 1993, at 9.30. Sperm is a significant piece of evidence in this case. Now, where is that ring, 62? May I have a moment, Your Honor? The court. All right. Mr. Danner. Scared me to death. I thought we lost the ring for a moment. I'll have to go see that eye doctor when I get home. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.